Thank you for your presence, and particularly for those who are visiting with us. We want to make you feel welcome. And I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew 21. In Matthew 21, I grew up with this parable as the parable of the tenants in the vineyard. A lot of your translations don't have the word tenants. And so I simply put in the title, Those Left in Charge of the Vineyard. Not a very dramatic title. But, but my point, um, these left in charge of the vineyard will teach us a lesson that Jesus deems so important that it appears in all of the synoptic gospels. But let's look at the text, beginning in verse 33. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and dug a wall around it and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent servants to the vine growers to receive its produce. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stole a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves, larger than the first. And they did the same thing to them. But afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these vine growers? They said to him, they answered the question, he will bring those wretches to a wretched inn. He will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him proceeds at the proper time. Proper seasons. Jesus said to them, Did you never read in the scripture the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing the fruit of it. But he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parable, they understood that he was speaking about them. When they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. Most, if not all of you, are familiar with Pilgrim's Progress that John Bunyan wrote. Pilgrim's Progress is the most well-known allegory in English. One of the best-selling books and most circulated books in world history. Some early church fathers tried to make the parables allegories. 
You may have at some time run across the description that some early church fathers gave of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Some of those things have turned people against the idea of allegory. But this parable has many allegorical elements where the various characters and events represent of things that we can tie down to the history of redemption, to the history of salvation. And this passage is absolutely full, full, in a way that I can't adequately express of Old Testament quotations, allusions, and echoes. But as we attempt to go back over the account, I want to make some of those most obvious ones, or at least to me, most obvious ones, uh, evident. But here in this passage, the parable begins with a landowner who planted a vineyard. Now, vineyards have been mentioned in the parable we studied last week in verses 28 through 32. A vineyard was mentioned in the parable in Matthew 20 verse 1. A landowner was also mentioned in the parable in 20 verse 1. There are all kinds of connections to the context. And I hope to bring some of those out more as we talk. But, but also there is a deep and rich history in the Old Testament story of God seeking to redeem a people and God seeking to call a people to himself. This description of what the landowner does for the vineyard in order to ensure that it produces fruit is a picture that goes back to the Old Testament. And we talked about last week, Isaiah 5 is strong in the background of such passages. In Isaiah 5, 2, as the Bible is describing Israel as the Lord's vineyard, it says he dug all around it, removed its stones, and planted it with a choice vine, and built a tower in the middle of it, and hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, and it produced only worthless ones. So, so what you see in this particular passage is you see that this parable of Jesus is closely tied to what God was doing with Israel. God was planting a people, planting a vineyard. And the Bible tells us at the appropriate time, God sends servants into the vineyard in order that the vine may, in order to get the fruit of the vineyard. Now, first of all, let me tie this to its context. Do you see the description in verse 34 where he talks about harvest time? Harvest time. What harvest time literally is, in the original language, is the season or the time of the fruits. Then, at the end of verse 34, he sent slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. That's also the word fruits. In verse 41, 
will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proper the, who pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. The text says who will pay him the fruits in their season. And then the word fruit is translated fruit in the New American Standard in verse 43. Why am I saying that? What does that have to do with anything? I know it's been a while since we preached on it. But you remember this very same day Jesus came to Jerusalem and he saw a fig tree with leaves but it had no fruit. Just as that tree produces no fruit, the nation has not produced fruit. But the Bible tells us the Lord sent servants in order to obtain fruit from these vine growers. Over and over in the Old Testament, the Bible uses the expression, my servants, the prophets. This is a history of salvation. This is a history of redemption. The Lord who planted a people sent his servants. He sent his servants to produce fruit in the people, to bring back the people to God. He sent his servants to the vine growers to receive the fruit. But they took his slaves, they beat one, they killed another, they stoned the third. Now, if you look at Mark and Luke in their description of this parable, they have one servant going at a time. And the servants are subjected to increasingly more severe rejection, more intense rejection. But in Matthew's account, he sends a group of slaves, and these slaves are beaten, killed, and stoned from the very beginning. As he is telling this parable with many allegorical elements, the servants represent the prophets, and the fact that they were rejected and stoned and killed is a description of what happened to the prophets in the Old Testament. As Elijah said, Lord, they have killed your prophets. And I alone am left that tore down your altars and killed your prophets. And I alone am left. Jesus is telling this parable of what has happened with this vine that he has planted. He sent servants to the vine growers and they took them and they beat them and they killed them and they sold them. And he sends another group and the same thing happens to them. In Mark and Luke, he sends three individuals and each time they are rejected, they are thrust out, and then finally in Mark's third account, they are killed. But this is how the prophets were treated in the Old Testament. But after this, God sends His Son or the vineyard grower sent his son. And he says, surely they will rather us. And I think it is understood. It is not that God is surprised at the rejection of Jesus. 
For how could all the Old Testament foretell of it? If He was. He knew what was coming. And still, He came. As we sang just a moment ago. But here the parable represents what should have been instead of what was. It should have been that when they saw the sun, they come to their senses and their respect for the landowner leads them to respect the sun. But instead of that being the case, they make the climactic act of rejection. Rejection of God. Rejection of, rejection of the landowner. They say, come, let us kill him and seize the inheritance. Do you remember what Joseph brothers said when they saw him coming in Genesis 37 and verse 20 come oh, let's kill him let's see what will happen in his dreams <laughs> and his son is treated that same way the son is treated that same way And they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. And what? What is the owner of this vineyard going to do? Mark and Luke picture Jesus answering this. But here... As in verse 31, the chief priest answered. The scribes answered. They said, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who pay him the proceeds at the proper season, pay him the fruit at his proper time. And there may have been others in the crowd that answered. But, but, but Luke shows us the utter horror of this. And some say, may it never be. But indeed, this was their story of history. And Jesus said, did you never read in the Scriptures something He often said to the leaders, did you never read the stone which the builders rejected? That shows us the Old Testament in Psalm 118 verse 22 knew that the Son was going to be rejected. The stone the builders rejected, this has become the chief cornerstone. It came about from the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes. This stone was rejected by the leaders, rejected by the builders. But this stone becomes the stone that holds the whole building together. The most important stone in all of the structure. That is Psalm 118, 22 and 23. And Jesus said, the kingdom is going to be taken from you and given to another people, producing the fruits of it. And the Bible tells us that this stone is a sure foundation. It is a reliable stone. It is the tested cornerstone. But it is also a stone of stumbling, as Isaiah 8 says, and a rock of offense to any who will not accept him. 
When the chief priests and Pharisees heard that he had spoken these things, they feared, they understood he was talking about them. Could the parables of Jesus be understood? Apparently. Even by his enemies. They knew who he was talking about. They knew. He was talking about them. And they wanted to kill him. That's a way to show him. He's talked about the prophets have always been rejected. And the sons being rejected and they're going to show him. By killing him. By doing exactly what he said. They would do. But they feared the people because they are persuaded that he's a prophet. In a few days, they will succeed. It's not all that, it's not every time, I should say, that you can just follow the text. And make clear points in the text, starting from the earliest point to the last. But I think there are clear lessons to getting verse 33. I'm going to tell you. The nation of Israel didn't bear fruit. It was his gospel. His mercy and grace has done everything that they might bear fruit. He's the one who took the vine out of Egypt, Psalm 80, and planted it in a choice land. He did this. In the language of Isaiah 5, he cleared the stones away. In the language of Psalm 80, he drove out nations that were stronger and mightier than Israel. He planted the vineyard. He drove out all inhabitants of the land. He removed all obstacles from the soil. He put a wall around it, a hedge. Some have suggested it was a stone wall. Some have suggested a hedge of thorns. But the point is he's protecting the wall. He's protecting the wall. He has a watchtower built so that he can provide security for the wall. And he has a wine vat ready to get the fruits. But all God has done everything needed that Israel may bear fruit. And I want to tell you, God has done everything needed so that we, as God's people today, God's people who are the Israel of God, now uh, in this language of Philippians 3, 2 and 3, that we might bear fruit. God has done everything and I want you to see, even though this is a parable that ends with judgment and ends with intense judgment, I want you to see in this parable the incredible patience and long-suffering and compassion of God. Now you might say, where is it? It is in verse 33, first of all, and then especially 
in verses 34 through 38. As he sends servants, as he sends servants to receive food, they're going to be driven out, they're going to be killed, and they're going to be stoned. Let me use a biblical illustration. He sends messengers to greet them and offer their condolences from King David. When he sends these messengers to Hanun, the son of Nahash, Hanun has some servants who tell him, Wait, you, you think they're really coming here to console you? They're really sorry about your father's death. Is that what you think they're coming? They're coming here. To spy out the slave. They're coming in for, for evil purposes. And not foolish listens to them. He listens to them. And then he insults these messengers. He insults these messengers by shaving off half of their beards and cutting off their garments. They insulted the messengers. They sinned. They insulted him. They were odious in his sight. What does David do? David did what any king who wanted to protect his people would do. David goes to war with the Ammonites twice in the rest of 2 Samuel 10. Because when your messengers are insulted in such a shameful and degrading and humiliating way, your kingdom cannot tolerate it or it will receive that treatment from everyone. And so he goes to war against them and conquers them. What? does God do when his messengers are insulted, when his messengers are shamed, when his messengers are killed? He sends more messengers. And they're treated the shame what same way. They're insulted. They're stoned. They're killed. He sends other messengers. And if all messengers are rejected and killed, 
sends one who is unique from all the other messengers. One who is His Son. I'm going to send Him. He puts Him in harm's way. And He is The long-suffering mercy of God and His relentless efforts to call people to Himself is demonstrated in His And it is absolutely amazing God's long-suffering and compassion and the very fact, and I looked for a good way to say that, the very fact that we are here worshiping Him freely this day is a result of centuries that have scratched It's the result of a millennium and then had to scratch back. It's the result of an eternity where God has continued to reach out and offer salvation to His people. From all eternity, God knowing all of His people's sins, all of the rejection of the prophets, all of the rejection of His Son, God seeing that doesn't give up. And still calls us to himself. going to be rejected by the builders. It's going to be rejected but it will become the chief cornerstone. You know something if you just look at that parable till we get to verse 40 all it tells us is the death of the son. All it tells us is the death of the son. But the rest of the parable shows us the resurrection of the Son. You say, where is that? It is from the passage quoted from Psalm 118, verse 22 and 23. The stone which the builders rejected, that is going to happen in just a couple of days with the crucifixion of Christ. The stone which the builders rejected, the same became the chief cornerstone. The fact that this rejected stone was going to become the chief cornerstone is going to become the foundation stone, the most important stone in all of the building. The fact that that is going to happen is a demonstration of the fact that he will be vindicated, he will be raised, he will be triumphant over the grave. 
the story of the gospel of Matthew. Well, let's, let's go back. Genesis ends with the death of Joseph. Deuteronomy ends with the death of Moses. Joshua ends with the death of Joshua. But the gospel ends not with the death, but the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection. The stone which the builders rejected is going to become the chief cornerstone. He's going to be triumphant over death, over the grave. But those who have rejected the stone will be pulverized by it. Ground to powder by it. Verse 443, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Listen to the language of Isaiah 8, verses 14 and 15. Then he shall become a sanctuary speaking of God, but to both the houses of Israel, a stone to stumble, a rock to stumble, a stone to strike, and a rock to stumble over, a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many will stumble over him, then they will fall and be broken, and they will even be snared and caught. The point of, the point in Isaiah 28 and verse 16, this stone is a sure foundation. If you want to find somewhere to build your life this day, it is upon Jesus Christ. I say that to those who are non-Christians. I say that to those who have been Christians for 50 years. You still build your life on the foundation of Jesus every single day. He is the foundation. But if we will not build our foundation on Him, if we choose to reject the Son, we will be destroyed by the stone. We will be pulverized by Him. God has done everything that we could bring forth food. If my life is not fruitful before God, it is my fault, not His. And it is your fault, and not His, as the case is And God has been so patient and so long suffering. You build your life on Him, you will never be put to shame. That's Romans 9. 32 and 33 says, quoting some of these stone But if we reject Him, if we reject all His goodness, and all His mercy, and all His kindness, and all His love, there will ultimately be judgment. If you believe these things and you haven't started your walk with Him, build on the foundation of Jesus of repenting of your sins and being baptized in Christ. If you
built on that foundation. But just like starting from and you need prayers and you need God's help and God's forgiveness, we all do. If you want to do that in a public way, we invite you to come and to stand. When I go home, number 169, pay special attention to the third verse. If the trial I endure in your presence I can't find, be near me, Lord, I pray. Bring back into my mind that your promises are firm and I'm never on my own. Every tear wipes away when I go home. In the moment he uh...